Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment. If you want to learn more about Island Press or the Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U, capital R, capital P. Our topic today is a new book from Island Press, Trains, Buses, People, An Opinionated Atlas of U.S. Transit. And our guest is, today is the author, Christoph Spieler. Christoph is Vice President and Director of Planning at Hewitt Zollers and a lecturer in architecture and engineering at Rice University. He was a member of the Board of Directors of Houston Metro from 2010 to 2018, where he oversaw a complete redesign of the bus network that has resulted in Houston being one of the few U.S. cities that are increasing transit ridership. Christoph, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. So for our listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, who are going to run out and buy the book, in your book, you profile, I understand you profile 47 transit systems across the United States, major cities that have rail transit. Is that correct? Yeah, this is every city in the 50 United States that has either rail transit or BRT. So 47 of them, starting with New York City and going all the way to Fort Collins, Colorado. And a lot of those cities obviously have multiple systems. So it's several hundred different transit systems covered in here. And what is BRT? Bus rapid transit. So it is a bus with its own lane, with high quality stations, with off-board fare collection. So a real upgrade from typical local bus service. Great. And my understanding is in the book, you um, take a very honest and open view of the systems, what systems are better, what systems are worse, and why. So maybe we can start out with what are the key elements to create a really good transit system in an urban area? Yeah, I think by far the most important thing is transit needs to go to where people want to go. And that means serving population density. And this is absolutely critical because every successful transit system is actually dependent on walking. People are on foot on at least one end of their transit trips for successful transit systems, most of the riders are actually walking to transit and then walking once they get off. And that means every station is a quarter mile circle, a half mile circle of destinations you can reach. The more people live in those areas, the more people that transit will be useful for, and the more destinations are in those areas, the more people that transit will be useful for. So population density, employment density, connecting the places where the most people are and getting into the middle of those places is absolutely critical. And and what the book talks about is we're not always very good at that in the United States. My understanding is one of the, from talking to other folks, is one of the key issues is frequency of service as opposed to how large the network is. Is that an accurate statement? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I really go through in the beginning of the book, what 
is it that really makes transit work for people? And frequency is absolutely essential. That if a train comes every five minutes, it'll be there whenever you need it to be. If it comes every hour, you need to plan your life around it. And then it has to be all day frequency because we tend to focus a lot on nine to five trips. But a lot of people's work schedules don't match that. A lot of people, if you work at a hospital, for example, you may be working a completely different shift. Students are traveling at different times of the day. Service workers are traveling at different times of the day. And people who are dependent on transit need the transit to be there for them for all of their trips, for going to the grocery store, for going to the park, for going to church. And so I think what's really important about frequency is it's not just what's at the peak of rush hour, it's what's there in the middle of the day, it's what's there in the evening, it's what's there on the weekend. And what are some of the places, let's start out with some of the places that have gotten it right. What are some of the best systems in the country? We have to put New York City at the top of that list. And I realize it's having plenty of issues in terms of reliability right now, but New York still has within New York City the best transit coverage of any U.S. city and by far the highest transit ridership of any U.S. city. And I think cities like Boston and and Chicago are obviously like that as well. I also think there's some cities which don't have transit systems that old. The first three I mentioned are all pre-World War II systems, and in some cases have hardly been expanded since. There's other cities which have really become great transit cities just in the last 50 years. I think Washington, D.C. is on that list. It's hard to imagine what D.C. would look like today without the metro, because it's really reshaped the entire city, both the urban core and a series of new centers all around the region, places like Silver Spring, that have grown up around metro stations. I think Seattle is extraordinary. It's a city which is really growing its transit ridership and has done a really good job of linking bus and rail together to create a really good system. And I think the Twin Cities in Minnesota are similar. It's not just the big pre-war cities that can have really good transit. And what are some of the worst? <laughs> You're the opinionated one. It's opinionated books. Exactly. No, I mean, I mean, I think there's cities like Miami, for example, that has never really followed through on its transit ambitions. In the book, I map out the frequent networks of all of these cities. And if you look at Miami's, it's actually a bunch of disconnected frequent networks that never quite meet each other and that really don't do a good job of matching where density is. And there's multiple other cities like that where they've simply never made the commitment to invest in transit like they needed to. But I also think it's notable that there are some cities which have made pretty big investments in transit and have ended up with systems that aren't as useful as they could be. I think Dallas and Denver, for example, have both built out really big rail systems. But if you look at those cities, those rail systems actually miss some of the biggest pockets of density that they have and have skipped over what really are some of their strongest transit corridors. In in Denver, for example, the Colfax bus carries more people than any of their rail lines. That's a sign that maybe that should have been the corridor that they invested in, but they instead they focused their rail system on places where they had existing right-of-way rather than the places that had the highest demand. So they put them in places that were easier to do rather than where it was most needed? Is that? That's a really familiar pattern across the United States. I, I have this image in the book of modern rail systems overlaid on density. And, and the way I describe it is it looks like airliners dodging thunderstorms, that whenever there's some place that's dense, the transit goes the other way. And there's reasons for that. I, I think some of them 
are pragmatic. If you have an existing freight rail line, it's really easy to convert that. You are you can acquire that right of way in one go. The problem is if that was an existing freight line, what was probably along it was things like warehouses, not people, not activity centers. So that you see that pattern a lot that they pick a corridor where there was an existing right-of-way, but the nature of that right-of-way actually meant that that wasn't the corridor you want to be. You also really see cities sort of back down from opposition, that if you are trying to build transit into the middle of a place where lots of people want to go, that is a place where there are lots of residents and lots of businesses that are going to have concerns. And those are important concerns. Those concerns have to be dealt with. Good transit agencies really focus on the design process and getting that stuff right. but. If you just avoid that, you're going to end up putting transit in the wrong places. I, I say that if you have a transit line and nobody is opposed to it, it's probably the wrong project because that's a sign you're going where nobody is. Now, also, I think on everything else, I think some of it is just kind of lazy thinking. It's you look at a map, you see there's already a line on the map, you say, let's use that rather than stepping back and asking where are people going from and where are they going to. Are there actually rapidly growing places that you think? are bucking that trend that are, you know, I think that the, the challenge in a lot of these places is they don't get ahead of the curve and they don't plan these things when they're starting on that kind of growth curve. Like I think of a place like Austin, Texas, that's growing very rapidly and I see lots of roads being built and it doesn't seem to be a very well planned and thought out plan. Are there places that you think are kind of the up and coming cities that really are being innovative about how they're approaching transit? Well, I think one thing I'd say is is there's a number of smaller cities that I think are doing a very good job. Um, Richmond, Virginia, for example, just opened a new BRT line, which is absolutely in the right corridor, the, the line that connects the most things together. But they also redesigned their entire bus system around that. Indianapolis is doing the same thing. So you are seeing some cities being really forward-looking in that way. And you have seen some examples of cities really combining transportation investments. Um, I mean, Houston did it in the 80s when all of the major freeway expansions also included an HOV lane to be used by commuter bus service. And that commuter bus service is now one of the most successful commuter bus services in the country. And I'm starting to see some places also really understand the idea that there are new evolving centers in their cities. And if they really plan those around transit and put transit into them, they too can be walkable places like downtowns are. And I think the Purple Line in DC is a really good example of that, of a, of a transit line that's really designed not to connect suburbs to downtown, but instead to connect a series of suburban centers together. Yeah. I have family that lives in Northern Virginia in the Arlington area. And and uh, it's, um, it's been interesting to watch over the last 20 or 30 years how well they planned the development around the metro in a way that um, really works. And it, it's really vibrant. And it, it took 20 or 30 years for it probably all to make sense, but it makes tremendous sense now. And one of the really important things to understand is when we talk about transit, we, we tend to talk about it as if the key decisions are made by transit agencies. And, and obviously, transit agencies are making really important decisions. But 
all sorts of other units of government are making really important decisions too. that land use regulations. What is allowed to be built where is incredibly important. We have a lot of places where zoning regulations are actually restricting the density around transit and thus making it a lot less useful for a lot, a lot fewer people. And you also see questions about where public services are located. Uh, where are you going to put a new community college campus? Where are you going to put a new hospital? And even when cities give economic development incentives, are they giving incentives to employers to locate in places where it will be really expensive to provide transit service later? Or are they giving those employers incentives to locate in places that are already well served by transit? So that's part of what I want to get across with this book is if we leave transit planning and thinking about transit only to transit people, we're not going to end up with a good outcome. We really have to think of transit as integral to the form of a city. So we continue on this path of urbanization in the United States, and it's become a, it's become a hot topic politically because of demographics, urban areas versus the rural areas. But my understanding is, so we, we're becoming increasingly urbanized, yet the percentage of our trips on public transit really has remained pretty steady and pretty low over the last 50, 75 years. Is that accurate? Yeah. And and I think it's important when we talk about transit, we are talking about percentages for entire metro areas or entire states or the entire country. And part of the reason those percentages are low is there's large areas where transit is simply not an option. There's obviously a lot of places in the United States that aren't within walking distance of a bus stop. But beyond that, there's a lot of kind of places in which making transit work well is basically impossible. And a lot of suburban development patterns fit that. For example, a typical cul-de-sac neighborhood naturally increases walking distances so that even if you can put a transit stop within a quarter mile of someone's house as the crow flies, they may have to walk half a mile or even a mile to actually get to that stop. That basic street pattern of that neighborhood and the basic density of that neighborhood are going to make it really hard for transit ever to be a really useful option for transit ever to get good ridership. And the same is true for a lot of employment development patterns. I I show an example of Silicon Valley in the book where you have these one and two story um, buildings in these big office parks surrounded by huge parking lots. It's really hard to make a place like that work for transit, even if you have a large number of jobs that are spread out across too large an area and a place that's fundamentally hostile to pedestrians. So one of the biggest limitations of transit was we've spent the last 50-something years building places which are designed entirely around the needs of automobiles without thinking about how transit fits into that. I mean, in the process, we've actually built some pockets in those places where transit can work pretty well. I mean, there's there's some real good success stories of transit at malls, for example. And it's interesting how many cities actually have fairly dense suburban areas with clusters of apartment buildings that can work quite well for transit, especially if we do some street retrofits. But the basic thing that transit is battling a lot of places is just places that were built in such a way that it's really hard to make transit work. And if we want more sustainable cities, one of the best things we can do is stop building those kind of places. I, one of the trends that I, I seem to see, you know, I, I don't know that it's statistically a trend, but I seem to see around the country is housing densification in the commercial corridors in suburban areas. 
So, so I see increasingly condos, apartments, all being built in in kind of more suburban or almost even sometimes exurban areas, kind of around the areas where commercial development used to be. Do you see that as a trend that will help enhance transit or just it's irrelevant because they're still going to be car dependent in those areas? No, it absolutely could. That if you take a corridor, if you take a straight line and you have a lot more development along that line. And and like you said, I think commercial corridors are often the most suited to new development since you tend to have large land ownership that makes it easy to make that transition. You can tear down a strip mall, replace it with a mixed-use complex with apartments and stores. And that's absolutely possible to make that conversion. It's absolutely possible to put transit in the middle of it. And one of the things that suburban areas do have going for them is really wide streets. What makes transit really reliable is giving it its own space. If you are in a 150-year-old street that only has two lanes, it's going to be really hard to do that. If you're on some eight-lane wide, huge arterial boulevard, finding the space to put transit in there is actually a lot easier. And you are seeing some of that happening. You're seeing in Houston, for example, a, a new BRT line being built in a very car-oriented suburban employment center where that's part of the transformation of that area, where you see the new construction is really buildings that are building up to the sidewalk that are addressed to pedestrians and inserting transit into that really supports that. And you can transform places into places where transit will work well. One of the things we've had a number of guests on the show talking kind of about the future of cars and the future of mobility, right? And these kind of larger trends of automated vehicles, mobility as a service where technology is allowing people to be more multimodal in their transportation. Thoughts that services like Uber and combining that with you know automated cars will actually decrease the number of cars in cities and also the need for in particular parking spaces. And these are interesting trends to to think about, but what do you see the future of public transit is in a world where we are going to get more vehicle automation and we're getting more mobility as a service as opposed to, you know, there's fewer millennials now own cars than previous generations. Do you see an uptick in public transit or are we going to see more Uber type services in the future? I mean, I think the most important thing to think about is actually the use of urban space. And this is something Jarrett Walker talks about really well. Fundamentally, what transit does really well is it moves a lot of people using very little space. And no single occupant vehicle, whether it's electric or whether it's automated or whatever else, if it's a single occupant vehicle, it will not be as efficient at using urban space as transit is. And so dense cities are always going to need transit to function. I am very concerned about all of these technologies and their impact on transit because I think that if transit agencies get distracted by them, if transit agencies don't focus on being good at what they do, and if politicians somehow get the impression that we don't need to worry about transit anymore, that I think is what could really do harm to transit. I would argue that what transit systems really need to do is focus on what they are really good at, which is moving large numbers of people in a straight line. Find those corridors where transit really will work and focus on those. I absolutely think automated technology is part of the future of transit. 
that we already have automated trains. And the great thing about an automated train is it costs less to run it. So you can run more of them. So you can run it more often. So you can provide better service. I would love to see automated streetcars and automated light rail and automated buses because they can do the same thing. I also think that there is a place for sort of app micro transit kind of models in places where the density isn't there, but we're trying to provide sort of transit as a basic lifeline service. It may be a much better way to deliver it than taking some 40 foot bus on a circuitous route through a neighborhood like we often do right now. I also think technology to some degree has distracted us in terms of what it means to make transit easy to use. Like, it's a great thing that you can go to Google Maps and plan a trip, but having a good trip planning app or having a good app that tells you when the next bus is arriving doesn't substitute for having a system that's easy to understand, for having a basic network structure that's logical, for having routes that are so frequent you don't need to think about a schedule. If you take a bad transit system and provide an app for it, it's still a bad transit system. And if you provide a good transit system, that app is a nice addition to it. But what makes a system easy to use is not the app. It's the basic thinking that goes into the system. In general, I think we tend to focus far too much about on technology and, and not nearly enough on the other things that are really much more important discussions, like where's the right place to put transit, like frequency, like span of service, all of those things. And the land use planning around transit to support the densities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one thing that is really important to note and that I really say in the book is nearly every city has a corridor that has a level of density and activity that can justify good transit service. So that this isn't some sort of exotic thing that is true only in a handful of places. There are these places in every medium and large size U.S. metro area. And in a lot of cases, we haven't invested in putting the transit there. So you've talked a lot about what, what is needed and what's happening and what you hope. But what is your vision? What do you see happening with public transit over the next 20 years in the United States? If you had a Christmas, since you're the opinionated one. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say that what has happened over the last couple of decades is we've gotten into a world in which transit is a normal part of cities, in which most U.S. cities have some form of rail or BRT. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's, it's a good thing that that's entered in the conversation. Where I hope we go is that the conversation moves from just talking about building stuff to a conversation that's about building networks that sees rail and bus working together to create one system and that thinks about how useful the system is as a whole rather than just thinks about what five miles can we build next. And that really starts to see all of these land use decisions and these transit decisions as bound together. And I can show some really positive examples from across the United States of cities doing that. Of Like I mentioned in Seattle, I think they've done a really good job of thinking about how do we create one seamless network where the bus routes and the rail lines are part of the same system rather than two things which happen to be in the same city. And I think we can see some really good examples of thinking more about developing around transit. Some of the discussion that's happened in California around changing zoning regulations around high frequency transit to give more people the chance to live next to transit. So I can see encouraging signs in both of those directions. And so the positive version would be that we see more of that in more cities, more holistic thinking about how transit works with everything else. 
I don't think that's guaranteed though. And, and, and that's what this book is about is I think that's only going to happen if more people are part of this conversation. The more we talk about transit, the more we talk about what good transit is, the more we talk about what makes transit work, the more likely we are to make good transit. And fundamentally, this isn't hard that I think the average intelligent person can design a really good transit system, can really identify where are the places that it needs to be, can think intelligently about what kind of service do we need to offer. The more community leaders we have in that discussion, the more informed that discussion is, the better the decisions we're going to make. Are we getting strong support for public transit from the real estate development and sales industry? It seems like that there's a pretty high demand for urban walkable residences, particularly among both the baby boomers and the uh, millennials. And I keep hearing that the demand in urban areas is really high. Has the real estate community weighed in on, on better transit? In general, yes. And I mean, I don't think the real estate community is one monolithic thing. You're also seeing, you know, some developers who make their money with more sprawl basically fighting transit because they see it taking away from the funding for the highways that they want to build. But I think a lot of developers have really caught on to the idea that that transit adds value. And you are seeing a lot of development near transit, not just in a handful of places, but in a lot of cities and Houston, Texas, we're seeing a lot of transit-oriented development, a lot of new buildings going up next to rail stations. To the degree that I think development has become a big part of the discussion around transit in the United States, and that can be a really good thing, but I also think there's downsides to it. Like, for example, one of the things that some cities have done is, is thought that the right way to get development around transit is basically to build transit into empty places because those look like they're easy to develop. But I think a lot of the bigger success stories around building more stuff around transit are actually when transit is going to places that had some level of density already, that already had a market established, and we're seeing infill development. I think the other thing is the primary purpose of transit is not creating new development. I think new development, providing more people the opportunity to live next to transit or work next to transit, that's absolutely a good thing. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the people who live there already benefit from better transit. And I am concerned that I, I see some cities sort of thinking development is the only sign of success on transit and actually in some cases, almost using development as a gentrification tool of, of trying to push development in areas where there are existing residents who don't want to be pushed out by that development. And so I think it's really important to not leave existing transit riders behind when we build new transit. All right. On that note, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time, but that was a, it was a great discussion. Christoph, thank you for taking the time to be with us and thank you for the book. I hope everybody enjoys it. Yeah. The book again is Trains, Buses, People, An Opinionated Atlas of U.S. Transit. It's available at Island Press. Is it also available on Amazon, Christoph, or is there another place that folks know? It is absolutely available on Amazon and obviously a lot of local bookstores as well. And if you go to trainsbusespeople.org, you can learn more about the book along with some new updates. And I'm also keeping a calendar there of my speaking engagements across the country. Fantastic. Christoph, thank you again. You are welcome. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on Infinite Earth Radio.
Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.